Autumn always makes me somewhat melancholy. Uh, makes me think about life and death. And the light begins to fade, you know, and dim a little. Here in Northern California, though, of course, it's so beautiful this time of year. The light is golden and makes everything kind of shimmer. But the days uh, are not quite as long, and there's a little chill in the air, and signs of uh, death or hibernation abound. The, the poet Riokan expressed that kind of melancholy all the time in his poems. I'll read you one I think is appropriate to this time of year. With my staff, I go for a solitary stroll, walking to the foot of the northern slope. Day and night, winds moan on ancient evergreen forests. Old corpses lie buried under the earth here. What can they expect to find through that long night? Foxes and wolves lurk in the dusty underbrush. Horned owls hoot on wintry branches. A thousand years from now, ten thousand years from now, is there any of us who won't be resting here? Aimlessly I linger a while, unable to bring myself to leave. A cold shiver runs down my spine. Teardrops fall and stain my robe. Real con. Crazy clouds, he was known as. <coughs> Halloween time is coming. An autumn holiday, Day of the Dead, where we play with the dark side and we uh, try to scare ourselves a little bit with skeletons and faces of goblins and gorillas and gremlins and snakes and things that we usually don't pay much attention to. They come out, visit us on Halloween. But for traditional Buddhists, the scariest thing of all is another life. <laughs> what will you be? Where will you show up? Perhaps as a hungry ghost with a huge belly and just a tiny little proboscis to eat through so that you live this life of insatiable desire, never ever being full? Or are you already living that life? <laughs> or maybe you'll have done something really bad and you'll end up in one of the hells. Buddhist hell realms. Well, the Christians got nothing on us. I'll read you a description of some of them if you'd like. I mean, we're going to get down tonight. That's what we're going to do. Usually I'm light and funny, and but... Okay, the, the hell realms, the, there are two kinds. There are cold ones and hot ones. <laughs> this is uh, 
And the, here's one, a few of the cold ones. One is called uh, Arbuda, Arbuda, the blister hell. This is a dark, frozen plain surrounded by an icy mountain and continually swept by blizzards. Inhabitants of this world arise fully grown and abide lifelong, naked and alone, while the cold raises blisters upon their bodies. The length of life in this hell is said to be the time it would take to empty a barrel of sesame seeds if one only took out a single seed every hundred years. But then there's a burst blister hell. This hell is even colder than the earlier one, and here the blisters burst open, leaving the beings' bodies covered with frozen blood. And then there's a hell of shivering, where the beings shiver in the cold, making at 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 sounds with their mouths. And another hell where of chattering teeth. Here the beings shiver as their teeth chatter, making the sound huh. That's just what it says here. Maybe I'm not making the sound correctly, but and then there's the Mahapadma, the great lotus hell. Here the whole body cracks into pieces and the internal organs are exposed to the cold, and they also crack. Those are the cold hells. The hot hells. Sanjiva. In this hell, the ground is made out of hot iron, heated by an immense fire. Beings in this hell appear fully grown, already in a state of fear and misery. As soon as the being begins to fear being harmed by others, they are attacked by uh, they attack each, start to attack each other with iron claws. And as soon as the being experiences an unconsciousness like death, they are suddenly restored to full health and the attacks begin again. Other tortures experienced in this hell are having melted metal drop on them, being sliced into pieces and suffering from the heat of the iron ground. And it goes on a long time, that hell. I mean, can I get a witness, uh, children? Are you ready to change your ways of life? (laughs) The Buddhist hell realms uh, have to do with uh, negative emotions and uh, difficult karma that you've accrued over many lifetimes and uh, you know you have to kind of go through and burn off or freeze off a load of that karma before you get the precious life of being a human on this human realm in this human plane which is not all it's cracked up to be This is the Buddha. Did you ever see in the world a man or a woman, 70, 80, 90, or 100 years old, frail, crooked as a gable roof, bent down, resting on crutches with tottering steps, infirm, youth long since fled with broken teeth, gray and scanty hair or none, wrinkled with blotched limbs? And did the thought never come to you that you also are subject to decay, that you cannot escape it? 
There are some monks in Thailand who greet each other as brothers and sisters in sickness, old age, and death. Just to keep that truth in front of them. The Buddha's first noble truth, as you know, Birth is suffering, decay is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief. Not to get what one desires is suffering, to get one what one does not desire is suffering. In short, the five aggregates of existence are suffering. I remember being relieved when I heard the first noble truth. I realized I didn't have to take it personally that I had not been singled out for special punishment. <laughs> this is what we all have to face. And the fact that the Buddha starts out with it as the basis of his teaching, I think is really significant. Some people would say, well, that's very negative, isn't it? It's realistic. He's talking the truth here. He's talking the real hard-to-face truth. We try to put a really good face on it, you know, make out that life is beautiful and serve some higher purpose and, you know, and it's somewhat easy to put a relatively good face on it here in America, you know, where we have ease and promise of lots of new pleasures always coming, you know, more coming. We're going to get it right. We're going to get it all together. And we're going to live happily ever after, right? It's just, I mean, you know, it's not the way it is. I have a litany myself of the truth of, of dukkha. First of all, you didn't ask to be born. Or at least you don't remember asking. <laughs> Suddenly, you know, in early childhood, you kind of, you wake up and you realize, damn, I'm in a life. How'd I get here? I'm in, in this body. I got this... And nature, everyone who's born, nature installs this survival instinct that makes us want more than anything else to stay alive. So we didn't ask to be born, and we can't choose to die. It's sort of like nature trapped us in this life. Uh, we've got to feed this body a few times a day to keep it going, to keep it alive. That means we have to work, you know, type or think or schlep, schlep things around or, or hunt. Hunt's an option too, to keep feeding this body. So you have to keep making this effort. Uh, you have to fight gravity every time you get out of bed in the morning. You have to fight gravity with every step you take. And you're not told why you're here or what you're supposed to be doing while you're here. And, I mean, all you really know is that you're in this life and that uh, someday you're going to die, which you very much don't want to do. I mean, that's about the parameters of... 
as, as Wavy Gravy says, you know, if you don't have a sense of humor, it's just not funny. <laughs> the Hasids used to have this saying, if God lived on earth, people would break out all his windows. <laughs> I mean, who fashioned this universe like this, you know? And then, of course, there's aging. I mean, I never, yeah, I mean, I never understood aging until I started doing it more often. Actually, I never really understood aging until my body began to explain it to me. My eyes spoke up and said, uh, Mr. Nisker, we've just about seen enough. We're just uh, going to take the old receptors and focusing muscles and go into semi-retirement here. <laughs> my bowels, they, they've been speaking to me my whole life, but uh, they began to sing a different tune. They basically, they basically said, we're, we're going on a work slowdown. I could, well, my testicles, boy, they said, uh, you know, we've been working hard down here for, and uh, we produced a lot of sperm, enough to populate an entire galaxy with your offspring, and we know you've wasted a lot of it, but, um, but maybe you better start seriously practicing Tantra, or take robes, because we're running out of juice, you know, we're just, (laughs) and then my memory, my memory, of course, spoke up, Uh, it had two words, forget it, (laughs) just, no, you feel it, and you feel it every day when you get out of bed, and, you know, I mean, I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm close to death, but I'm certainly, uh, I'm, I'm certainly feeling the, the sort of collapse. I, I read somewhere that as we age, especially in, in our later years, the hard parts of us get softer and the soft parts of us get harder. So you, it's like you collapse around your organs, you know, which kind of hold you up. Oh, it's, a, it's, an, it's a un, you know, it's awful. And... And the Buddha talks about it all the time. Death and aging and sickness. He says, look at it, look at it. Partly look at it because it will motivate you to practice. Because the only thing that's going to be really important to you at the moment of your death is going to be how much Dharma you have embodied uh, how how wise you are, how present you are, how how easily you have, you know, all the minutes that you've practiced letting go in the sitting practice, which is really, uh, you can think of it as a practice of dying to each moment. That's what's going to be important to you. The Buddha really wants to look us to look closely at the dark side because actually that's the way out of our misery. To let go of our attachment 
to pleasure, our attachment to experience, and especially our attachment to this self, this story that we have been telling ourselves our whole lives. In the second noble truth, where the Buddha is talking about the cause of our suffering, he says the cause is desire. Desire for sense pleasures, which we all are very familiar with. He also says, and desire for existence and non-existence. That both are reasons for our suffering. But it's, it's this holding on to this story that really is what creates the suffering in our lives. The third noble truth, he says, to end our craving, diminish the desire, develop a mind that clings to nothing, that holds on to nothing. Now, he's certainly talking about not holding on to the body, not holding on to the personality, not holding on to the story we tell about ourselves. Does he mean not holding on to family, to humanity, to life itself? Do we develop that kind of, uh, that kind of equanimity that is not attached to any of this, any of this show? It sounds so cold. But you know that's what nirvana means. No fires. The fires have gone out. So maybe that's what the Buddha was saying. At the very deepest level, learn to let go of it all. And, of course, he emphasizes that there is love in the world and there is compassion and caring, but don't hold on. And don't, don't sentimentalize it so much. Don't... Don't get too attached. He said at some place, true happiness comes from eliminating the false conceit of I or self. If you really want happiness in this life, let go of it all. Let go of the conceit of I or self. When I, when I first heard about identity theft, I thought... <laughs> Come, take it. <laughs> Leave the cash, but take it. <laughs> it. But if you go through some of the suttas, you'll see the Buddha is constantly deconstructing our experience, the, the, the stuff that we put so much value on. He, he, he takes apart this existence so that we can see it in parts and we can see how it is fabricated and how it's really not owned by us. It just is what appears out of the phenomena that, that are converging at this moment inside of us. This is from uh, a sutta called the Six Sets of Six, which is about the six senses and how you should regard them. Uh, one regards the eye thus. Oh, first he says, bhikkhus, this is the way leading to the cessation of personality. One regards the I thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. One regards forms thus, 
One regards eye consciousness thus. One regards eye contact thus. One regards feeling thus. One regards craving thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And then he goes through the ear consciousness and taste consciousness and thinking consciousness and none of it, none of it is I or self. And what he's basically saying is that this experience is the result of many, many causes and conditions coming together and it is not owned by you. So that you begin to step back from your total involvement in the, uh, the experience of, of, your, of your story, of the experience that you call you or I. You see that it is, you can take it apart. And it, those of you who have done retreats and sat in meditation and developed enough uh, concentration, you begin to see all the parts. And the, and the experience itself no longer enchants you in the same way because you see it uh, very clearly how it's happening. And that it's not, there's no you behind it. As it says somewhere in the Abhidhamma, empty phenomena rolling on. A moment of eye consciousness, uh, eye meeting form, uh, contact happening, uh, pleasant uh, experience, desire begins, attachment begins, an unpleasant experience, aversion begins. You see how it all happens automatically, it's not owned by you, it is not yours. And that begins to free you from it all. It's not easy to see through the self, but it's really what the Buddha wants us to see. I think as humans we have a special attachment to self, maybe because we are the only species to know of our own death, that we are the species that seems to uh, uh, see ourselves in time, to be able to see ourselves in time, so we begin to develop a history, a story around this self, which gives us more of a sense, uh, adds weight to, to this sense of I or me. Also, as a species, we gain power over the earth and all the other species. And we've come to believe that we are the reason for all creation. We have come to believe that it all revolves around us. I have a secret theory that it happened because we, we stood up on two legs. You know, we thought we were above it all. We could, you know, we, it gave us that perspective. This is Darwin from his secret notebooks. Man in his arrogance thinks himself a great work worthy of the interposition of a deity. It is our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. When Darwin first started writing about the theory of evolution, he said it was, he felt like, this was also in his notebooks, he felt like he was committing murder, it, he, and he was very, he was very uh, frightened of doing it, because it was a whole worldview, a worldview that had been held by humans for centuries, for millennia, 
specially created, all about us. And suddenly he's saying, no, you're part of this flow, this stream of life. He said, never say higher or lower. A grand species, pretty smart, no doubt. But the reason for all creation, the be-all and end-all, Science, I think, is really helping us demystify this life and perhaps gain some sense of perspective on it that we've never had as humans. It's a great t-shirt, I think, created by the biology department at Santa Cruz. The t-shirt says, it's a picture of banana and says, uh, we share 25% of our our DNA with bananas. Get over yourself. (laughs) We really are identified with our heads. We really think we live in... This is a great uh, little story. I I read this and I I thought, now this is, I got to bring this into the meditation uh, world. Uh, We we think we live here, right? In, In here. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we come into our breath and our body and begin to feel ourselves as living, breathing uh, organisms is so that we can kind of break our identity with the storyline, which is all produced up here. But we think that's where we live, inside the skull. Well, the the first heads, some some, uh, evolutionary biologists have discovered or theorized that the first heads appeared on these marine, these miniature little marine creatures as extra clumps of cells that grew up around the mouth of the creature so that the creature could manipulate its mouth better to uh, grab and, uh, and swallow food. And then, of course, the sense organs began to grow up around this little clump of cells because you want to be able to see the food and smell the food and see and smell other beings that want to make you food, and that basically the head is there to eat with. The, the, the head is all about the mouth. I know it's not a pretty picture, is it? I mean, it's not how you want to think of yourself, you know? You probably looked in the mirror tonight, and you know, you comb your head. It's an eating device. This, this is Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, this was uh, written way back when the, the story of evolution was raging as a debate, you know, still going on. But, you know, we're getting bigger four brains. We're, we're learning. Okay, so he, he says, I seem to be the only scientist and theologian still remaining to be heard from on the important matter of whether the world was made for man or not. I feel that it's time for me to speak. According to the latest figures, it took 99,968,000 years to prepare the world for man, impatient as the Creator doubtless was to see him and admire him. But a large enterprise like this has to be conducted warily, painstakingly, and logically. It was foreseen that man, once he arrived, would have to have the oyster. Therefore, the first preparation was made for the oyster. Very well. 
You cannot make an oyster out of whole cloth. You, cannot, you must make the oyster's ancestors first. And this is not done in a day. You must make a vast variety of invertebrates to start with. Trilobites, jebusites, and that sort of critter. Put them to soak in a primary sea and wait and see what will happen. Some will be a disappointment. They will die out and become extinct in the course of the 19 million years covered by the experiment. But all is not lost, for the Amalekites will develop gradually into Encronites in one thing and another as the mighty ages creep on and the Archaean and Cambrian periods pile their lofty crags in the primordial seas and at last... The first stage in the preparation of the world for man stands completed. The oyster is done. Now, an oyster hardly has any more reasoning power than a scientist has, and so it's reasonably certain that this one jumped to the conclusion that the 19 million years was a preparation for him. But that would be just like an oyster, which is the most conceited animal there is except for man. (laughs) And, of course, this oyster could not know at that early date that he was only an incident in a scheme and that there was more to the scheme yet. And it goes on and on about all the things that had to be prepared just so that man would come along and uh, enjoy him or herself. But this science info lies rusting in our neocortex unless we can somehow integrate it And uh, the Buddha's, as I said, deconstructs our experience and in the process of meditation points us to that uh, process and how we can all do that. To break our attachment to this body, uh, basically take it apart. There's one uh, in the Mahasatipatthana Sutra uh, in the section on mindfulness of the body. There's a section on a reflection on the 32 parts of the body, it's a reflection on foulness. And you, you kind of uh, focus on, all the, on these 32 different parts of the body one at a time, like the hair, a, a hair, a fingernail, and, uh, you know, a, a tongue, a, a urine, pus. I mean, it... And, uh, you know... If it's all, all the parts are separated out and laid out, it's not very attractive. <laughs> the, in the Vasudhi, we're, we're getting into we're getting into the Halloween stuff here now. In the Vasudhi Magga, it says the human face is full of holes, like an insect's nest. Describes the brain as a lump of marrow, the color of a toadstool, or the color of milk gone sour. The description of eating is just totally gross. I won't go into it. But the main thing the Buddha wanted us to do to break our attachment to the body and this particular existence and to arouse our uh, energy to practice and to, to understand and, and incorporate the Dharma, the main thing he pointed to was death. He said of Just as in the jungle, the elephant's footprint is supreme. So in my teaching of all the mindfulness meditations, the meditation on death is supreme. In Tibetan Buddhism, they say a day that without reflecting on your own death is a wasted day. In Zen, they say, die before you die. 
then when death comes around, you can say, no problem, been there, done that. <laughs> the Buddha sends his disciples out to the cemetery, the burning grounds actually, not at the cemetery, cremation grounds. And he gives them instructions to go to the corpses in different stages of decomposition because some of the people who bring the corpses there can afford an elaborate uh, you know, burning and ritual and others just sort of leave leave bodies there. So the Buddha has his monks go to the cremation grounds and he instructs them thus. If a monk sees a body dead one, two, or three days swollen, blue and festering, thrown in the charnel ground, he then applies this perception to his own body. Verily, my own body is of the same nature. Such it will become and will not escape it. And further, if a monk sees a body thrown in the charnel ground, being eaten by crows or hawks or vultures, or by different kinds of worms, he then applies this perception to his own body, thus, Verily, my own body is of the same nature. Such it will become and will not escape it. This was a practice. This was a very common practice in the Buddhist time. And still, in in many uh, monasteries, they will instruct the the yogis to go and do this. uh, We don't have burning grounds here, uh, th- there are some places, though, that you can go and, uh, and be with bodies. There's a, a monastery in Chicago that's arranged with a morgue, and the monks go and they sit in the morgue with the bodies. Anyway, the, the nine, these are nine cemetery contemplations. At the end, it's uh, if a monk sees a body thrown in the charnel ground, reduced to bones, gone, so- gone rotten, and become dust, he applies this perception. My my own body is the same nature and uh, will not escape this fate. Death, it's, uh, it's something that we all will face. I'd like to have you now just do a very short little meditation. You don't have to get into uh, any special p- position. But I would like you to just close your eyes and feel yourself Feel your aliveness, first of all. Be aware of your body seated here. Feel the energies, the strength of your body, the warmth of your body. Warmth is a sign of life. Feel the pulses. You might put your finger on your wrist or your neck and feel a heartbeat. There's breath. The senses open, hearing, feeling the sensations.
consciousness, this mysterious quality of knowing. Knowing of yourself in the world. Knowing of yourself and the world. The Buddha wants us to acknowledge two important things. One, the certainty of our death, the death of this body. And secondly, that we don't know when it will happen. We are uncertain about the time. It could happen at any time due to accident, unknown illness. So we acknowledge to ourselves that this life that I'm experiencing at this moment for some reason, for some cause as yet unknown This life will leave, will end. You might imagine or sense or visualize the breath will become irregular. The heartbeat will become irregular. The senses will begin to grow dim. The the light will fade. The sound will fade. All these elaborate processes that make up this organism will stop functioning. There's No avoiding this truth. When the blood no longer reaches the brain, the memory will be erased. The memory only you hold of this life. The body will be disposed of someday. This body. Is there anything of you? That goes on? Certainly the story. Of you. On this earth. That you've created around yourself will end.
Acknowledge to yourself that this is inevitable. Notice as you imagine yourself dead. There is any emotion that arises, fear, sorrow, relief. You might be remembered on this earth for a few generations. But several generations later, there may be no memory whatsoever of you having been here. So now we'll resurrect ourselves and just come back and feel your breath for a few moments. Feel your aliveness again. Feel your body strength and the energies and the vibrate, vibrating, pulsing, sensate being seated here. I try to do some death reflection every time I teach, whether it's a day long or a retreat. And I, I try to do it myself every so often, every couple weeks or so. You know, Carlos Castaneda was told by Don Juan to keep death over his left shoulder because it enhanced his presence in the moment. And the sense of aliveness. Of course, there's melancholy around the whole thing, you know. I, I, at the autumn, the autumn really brings it up for me. The momentariness of this life, really. Rilkan says, it's like a dream, he says. The vicissitudes of this world are like the movements of the clouds. Fifty years of life are nothing but one long dream. In my desolate hermitage at night, quietly I clutch my robe and lean against the empty window. There's a tradition in some cultures of really being present with death a lot more than we have in our culture. The Japanese have developed a, 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 a practice of death poems, writing death poems among the samurai warriors and the wandering poets and Buddhist monks. 
it was a tradition to write your death poem and cheating to write your death poem a long time before your death. You write it right at the moment, right at the time to show how you are taking this, uh, this approaching event. And uh, sometimes the samurai clans, when they would capture, uh, take prisoners and take them back to be executed, they would take them into the execution room and there would be the executioner with a sword and there would be a stand with ink and pen or quill and the warrior would write his death poem and then put his head to the, to the sword. There's a wonderful book called Japanese Death Poems. I'll, show, I'll share a couple with you. Um, they really have that kind of uh, detachment this was a, a samurai warrior named Tsukitomo who said, wrote his, wrote his poem right before his execution, All five manners of my fleeting form and its four elements will return to naught. I'll put my neck to the unsheathed sword. Its cut will be but a breath of wind. Ota Dokan, a scholar and a poet, was stabbed as he was bathing. Clutching the dagger, he uttered the following death poem. And we can only assume that it was written down by the guy who stabbed him. But <laughs> had I not known that I was dead already, I would mourn my loss of life. It's living with that sense of... of always being on the edge of the fragility of it all. Sokan, a Buddhist uh, poet, if someone, this was his death poem, if someone should ask where Sokan went, just say he had some business in the other world. <laughs> and uh, Kyoriku was uh, considered a great haiku poet and was expected to get the mantle of a great haiku poet uh, from Basho, the father of haiku. And he was very, uh, apparently very egotistical and he knew it and everybody else knew it. And this was his death poem. Till now I thought that death befell the untalented alone. If those with talent too must die, surely they make a better manure. And this is uh, by a Zen master named Kozan, uh, who forbid his students to do any kind of ceremony around his death. You know, he'd die and just put him in the, in the ground. And uh, a day before his death, he called his pupils together, and, uh, and then he wrote this poem on the morning of his death, uh, sitting in meditation, which was very auspicious to die sitting in meditation. He wrote, empty-handed I entered the world, barefoot I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. And here's just a couple of uh, haiku poets in their death poems. Joseki, that at the age of 85, this was his death poem. This must be my birthday, 
there in paradise. Kiba died at the age of 90. My old body, a drop of dew grown heavy at the leaf tip. Tear you. Though I should live to be a hundred, the same world, the same cherry blossoms, the moon is round, the snow is white. I have a few more poems. I mean, I wanted to, uh, to do that death reflection, but I have a few more poems. This is about the afterlife. I mean, we... I mean, who knows, right? As the, the, the famous story of the disciple who comes to the Zen master and says, what happens after death? The Zen master says, I don't know. And the student says, but you're a Zen master. He says, yeah, but I'm not a dead Zen master. <laughs> this is uh, our poet, our former poet laureate, Billy Collins, on the afterlife. While you are preparing for sleep, brushing your teeth or rifling through a magazine in bed, the dead of the day are setting out on their journey. They're moving off in all imaginable directions, each according to his own private belief. You see, you go to the place you always thought you would go, the place you kept lit in an alcove in your head. So some are being shot up a funnel of flashing colors into a zone of light. White as a January sun, and others are standing naked before a forbidding judge who sits with a golden ladder on one side and a coal chute on the other. Some have already joined the celestial choir and are singing as if they've been doing this forever, while the less inventive find themselves stuck in a big air-conditioned room full of food and chorus girls. Some are approaching the apartment of the female god, a woman in her 40s with short, wiry hair and glasses hanging from her neck by a string. With one eye, she regards the dead through a hole in her door. There are those who are squeezing into the bodies of animals, eagles and leopards, and one trying on the skin of a monkey like a tight suit, ready to begin another life in a more simple key, while others float off into some benign vagueness, little units of energy heading for the ultimate elsewhere. That's me. There are even a few being led to an underworld by a mythological creature with a beard and hooves. He will bring them to the mouth of a furious cave guarded over by Edith Hamilton and her three-headed dog. (laughs) The rest just lie on their backs in their coffins, wishing they could return so they could learn Italian or see the pyramids or play golf in a light rain. They wish they could wake in the morning like you and stand at a window examining the autumn trees looking out on another day. We've got time for another. This is Hafiz. This is a great poem because he says, death is a favor to us. The poem's called Deepening the Wonder. Death is a favor to us but our scales have lost their balance. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in the tavern tonight, Hafiz would call for drinks, and as the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. 
If I were in the tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world because our marriage with the cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us, but our minds have lost their balance. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. Thich Nhat Hanh used to say, impermanence, rejoice in impermanence. Without it, everything would be immobile, stuck. It's all process. Join the dance. Okay, one last one before we leave. Mary Oliver. When death comes, when death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity a possibility, and I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy and as singular, and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silence, and each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over... I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. When, I, when it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. All my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. And that's really the end result of facing the harsh facts of life and the fact of our death, the fact that it's momentary, this life, is that we open, we begin to open more have compassion for each other, feel, feel the preciousness of this moment. So, in autumn, the melancholy appears and is welcomed. Let's just sit for a moment.
The impermanence of this life always makes the illumined ones dance and sing. Next Monday, uh, Ed Brown will be here, and dinner will be served next Monday. It would be a great help if you could... Uh... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.